everyone, I'm Bex and together with Goddard we are representing Ace of Ventures. Today we'll be interviewing Jacqueline Vandenander, a partner at Peak Capital. We'll be talking to her all about her journey into becoming a partner at a venture capital firm, as well as the entrepreneurial ventures she's been a part of along the way. Meanwhile, we'll talk about the coronavirus pandemic and how it's impacted the VC industry. So Jacqueline, thanks for being here with us today. We really appreciate it. First off, can you please tell us a bit more about yourself and what your role is? Cool. Well, I'm uh, currently a partner at uh, Peak Capital. Peak Capital is a venture capital fund, and we are a proud, uh, we're very proud to have a former ASIF member, Madeline Lawrence. Uh, she is absolutely awesome. So she joined our team a few months ago. Um, and we even have an ASIF portfolio company, which is Dime. Uh, so we're actually co-investors already. But um, so maybe in short, P Capital is a 66 million euro uh, VC fund and we invest in startups, um, mostly seed stage startups. So companies that have a little bit of product market fit and then are ready to scale. And we fund them with 300k to 3 million tickets. So that's what I spend most of my time on. So, yeah. Great. I know that uh, in the past you've said that Peak Capital is one of the most entrepreneurial and value-adding uh, investors out there. Would you mind elaborating a bit on that? Mm, okay. Well, I'm sure more investors claim that they are both entrepreneurial and the most value-adding. Um, so I can only speak for the Peak Capital perspective. But, um, well, entrepreneurial in the sense that most uh, partners, including myself, have actual experience building companies. So I joined the fund very recently, nine months ago. And before that, I spent um, six years in Asia building companies. I founded the Finda of the Philippines, uh, sort of a real estate uh, marketplace, um, and led a fintech company there. Started my own company as a student, Clinical Zultans, which you might know. Um, so I've that kind of sort of hands-on experience in building companies and my other partner, Johan van Mille, he actually built and sold 13 different companies. So entrepreneurial in the sense that we know what it is like to actually build a company versus a purely spreadsheet view. We have some investors that sort of grow up the ranks within VC firms and they learn you know, how to run a business from seeing a lot of businesses being run. And I think that can be a very interesting perspective. But the other half of VC investors are generally people who have actually built a company, done it several times, made a lot of mistakes and know what mistakes to avoid in the future. So entrepreneurial in that sense. And then all of the uh, limited partners, so all of the actual investors of P-Capital uh, are entrepreneurs. So we have, say, founders of Booking.com, founders of Audien, uh, founders of, for example, Emes of Gansi Feilingen, a lot of like, you know, Dutch um, successful tech companies are invested in Peak Capital. And we're very proud of that. And we also try to actively leverage that network and experience for startups. So recently, for example, we had a session with Dime and six of the entrepreneurs who are invested in our fund. And we spoke about the strategy of Dime and got feedback from these limited partners on, on the strategy. And then value added, we tried to sort of support companies in, in every way possible. For example, hiring the right people uh, to be in the C-level team, 
thinking about how to internationalize. What countries should we go to? How should we go to markets? Uh, what networks do we have that can actually help companies succeed in those markets? Um, well, we think about sales, about strategy, about fundraising. So basically anything a company needs, we try to support. Yeah, that's great. And you mentioned that uh, as you were a student, you set up a venture called the Kleiner Consultant. Yeah. So obviously, as we are a student-led venture capital firm, a lot of our audience are students. Yeah. So this exact venture is extremely relevant to them. So can you tell us a little bit more about the Kleiner Consultant and how you came to set that up? Um, well, I've, I've been having business ideas all my life, more or less every month, uh, business idea, including a name sort of falls from the sky. And most often I don't follow through with these ideas. But in the case of the Kleine Consultant, well, I was working in a, in a small cinema. It's called the Uitkijk on the Prinsgracht. And it's the smallest cinema in Amsterdam. And we were running that cinema with 12 students together. And all of them were like film and theater students. And none of them had any sort of like business sense. So I was, I was the only economics student there. And uh, at some point, they wanted to start a company. And they uh, had been talking about it for six months. Nobody knew really how to proceed. And so I sat with them for two hours and asked, well, what do you want? What do you want? What do you want? And sort of a structured plan came out and said, okay, well, maybe you should focus on this and not on that. And, and these are the next couple of steps. And so in a few hours, we got the solution that they had been looking for for, for months. And I distinctly remember walking out of the cinema under the stars, uh, unlocking my bike. Suddenly the idea for the clinical consultant sort of fell from the sky, including the name. Um, because I suddenly realized that on one hand, there are a lot of smart students like you guys who go to all of the McKinsey business courses. Like they're, you know, they're, they get invited to all these business courses um, and who can actually add a lot of value to uh, student companies, to nonprofits, to small companies, to anybody who needs strategic advice but can't afford to hire McKinsey. So it was a win-win situation where students get uh, real-life experience uh, and it's super fun to solve strategic problems. The students get coaching and training from top consultants because it's supported by A.T. Kearney, McKinsey, Boston Consulting Group, etc. The consultants get a very important talent pool and, um, uh, and, and our customers get free or affordable strategic advice. So it was sort of like the win-win-win situation. And as it goes, the very next day, I met a friend, just a random friend. We, we were, I mean, we barely, we barely knew each other really. And we were talking about Isaac, which was the organization I had done before and about what to do after Isaac. And I said, well, maybe you should be my co-founder of the clinical zone. I have this new idea and, you know, uh, and she said, oh, that's really cool. And a month down the line, of course, I had progressed already on my next business plan, my next business plan. So I was already, you know, two or three business plans down the line. But Marika came back to me and she said, Jackie, how about the clinical zone? Are we actually going to do that thing? And I said, oh, yes. Okay, let's, let's, let's try this. So we started telling everybody about it. So I would go to business courses with Roland Berger and with others and people would ask, okay, who has a startup here? And I would talk about my startup idea for the clinical consultant. And we noticed that people got very enthusiastic. So people started saying, oh, how can we participate? That's a really cool idea. How can we be part of this? 
And we got such positive reactions that we realized, okay, maybe this is actually a good idea. Maybe we should start. So, I mean, the lesson there for me was, you know, if you have an idea, share it with people. Sometimes, especially young entrepreneurs are getting clients to say, okay, I have a great, brilliant idea. I'm not going to tell anybody because people are going to steal my awesome idea. But normally that's not how it works. So normally it can really help to spread the idea and you will find people who want to collaborate with you on that idea. So ultimately we started in a really simple way. We put up a poster uh, all around Amsterdam. We got people to our information evening. We selected the first batch of 20 clinical consultants. We went around the network to find uh, our first assignments. And, and that's more or less how we started. That's quite an impressive story, yeah. And you mentioned that you were studying economics. So uh, as you were going into your studies, uh, did you already know that this uh, type of entrepreneurial path was something you wanted to go down? Yeah, good question. I think the answer is no. I initially, after high school, I went to university college. And I think at the time I wanted to do either be a diplomat or work for the United Nations. Um, then I got a little bit disillusioned with nonprofits and like governmental organizations because it was very slow. And I was taking this course on human rights and it would be like endless deliberations or are human rights rights or not? <laughs> not rights. And ultimately I ended up, you know, sort of applying for, for the Air Force because I was so fed up. I really wanted to do something more, more tangible. Um, and then after university college, I started to get more interested in strategy consulting. I really liked the idea of, you know, solving strategic problems. And it was a very sexy thing at the time. I'm not sure if that still is the case, but back in the day, it was sort of like the most prestigious thing you could do. And... Um, well, after, uh, after university college, I thought, okay, I want to be in strategy consulting. How do I get in? So I decided to take the most um, mathematical course, mathematical master's course I could take, given my liberal arts uh, bachelor. So I ended up studying economics, which was incredibly boring. I don't remember anything from this study, but um, I mean, that's okay. You will notice later on that what you study doesn't really make much of a difference. Um, so I, I only sort of started getting the entrepreneurial bug because I had a lot of ideas, not necessarily because I'm such a hustler. You have people, students who have their first company at the age of 14, selling websites or, or I don't know, selling lemonade, for example. People have always been, you know, trying to make a little bit of money here or there. And I think those, that's a great predictor of great future entrepreneurs. When in ASIF you're evaluating companies really look for these sort of like very early kind of hustler like skills um, but for me it was more about ideation I just had ideas all the time and I sort of yeah more or less accidentally rolled into it with the clinical zoo yeah that's really interesting I know that obviously you've just talked about how uh, you know you're the type of person who's had a lot of uh, a lot of ideas and I think that's very true of all uh, entrepreneurially minded uh, people you know you have ideas sort of falling from the sky. Um, but how would you say that uh, you can kind of weed out the bad ones from the good ones? When, you know, when you are just constantly having ideas, how do, you, how do you really make the decision to go, okay, this one, this one I should stick to, this one I should really give a good go? Yeah, well, that's a good question. And 
I would say that you will know when you start telling people about it and you will see that some ideas resonate and other ideas are sort of like, moi. It's sort of like, you know, you, you throw something against the wall and you see if it sticks. If it sticks, then you're on to something. And otherwise, if you forget yourself and other people also kind of forget about it, um, then perhaps it's not such a great idea. And I've noticed that once in a while, when I have an idea and I start telling people about it, people really start saying, how can I be part of this? And that's when you know you're onto something. That's great. Yeah, that's great advice. Uh, I know, yeah, I know a lot of people really struggle with that. So I think that's probably the best way. And of course, as you say, just going out there and telling people about your ideas. I know a lot of people get worried that people are going to steal their ideas, but the reality is, never happens unless you know it takes a lot of effort to build a startup so you may as well just go for it exactly five percent is idea idea and 95 percent is execution so yeah i think the the upside potential the benefit of telling people about your idea is so much greater than the risk of other people stealing your idea that i was always up for for the first yeah so in terms of, uh, yeah, that, that execution of the idea, I think something which can often uh, stop, uh, especially young entrepreneurs, and I know a lot of women have this problem in general, is just feeling imposter syndrome and feeling as if, you know, maybe you don't, uh, maybe you lack the skills or maybe you lack the knowledge or, or maybe even you just don't feel that confident about your idea. Is this something which yeah. you've ever experienced? And um, if so, or if not, how, how do you think that people can get past this? Well, that, that's a great question. And the answer is yes, I do experience this all the time. I, I actually, I, I did a talk at a certain point because I came up with a bit of a framework of what happens in my head. So what happens in my head is that Every, every so many weeks, depending on how much inspiration I have, an idea falls from the sky. And at the moment that happens, I'm like at the peak of my energy. I feel energized. I can see it happening. I'd love to spend my whole weekend writing a business plan. Like my wife goes crazy every time I say I have another business plan. <laughs> it's the whole cycle. <laughs> but, so, so this is a moment of like an explosion of energy and creativity. And then come all the questions. I'll be like, oh, but maybe there's too much competition. Maybe this has already been done. Maybe it's not, you know, feasible. And, and so I go down, 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 down. I started this high and it goes down, 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 down. And it, this is where 99% of my ideas have perished. You know, I call it the idea graveyard because this is where all my ideas have died. And like, I mean, I only started one company so far in my life. So you can imagine how many ideas are down in the graveyard. And very often what happens is, you know, before I can even follow through on an idea, I have a new idea. And so I go back to the high and I keep on looping. I go in this sort of like high to low looping of ideas. So again, what I've developed as a strategy, and I, and I think works to a certain extent at least, is that. I tell people about my idea that helps me find collaborators. I create a team of people who help me work, who, who work on this idea with me. So I immediately create co-founders and those people hold me accountable, 
right? So then I get into a rhythm of like, okay, we'll have a weekly meeting. We actually start to incorporate the business. We start to do sales. We make a pitch deck. We actually create the product. So you need to get yourself into an execution mode. And I do that by finding collaborators, co-founders with whom I stick to the execution. Because maybe the good thing to know is that I think, and well, my, I can only speak from my own personal experience, but I think way more people than you think go through that mental, mental anxiety, like insecurity. And it's very difficult to see because all the entrepreneurs that you see are already successful in some way. So you only see people who are very confident and successful, but you don't see all the people who are trying to get something off the ground and going through that mental, mental struggle. So I think it's way more normal that it is also part of the right. You should accept that that is part of the right. It's also, it's part of your growth curve as a person, right? Learning to deal with the insecurity. Uh, and, and, and again, it really makes it much easier if you're with two or three people or, or four or whatever, but you can bounce up your idea. You can share your insecurities and you sort of create a structure or rhythm that keeps you on the road to execution. And that's where suddenly it starts to fly. So then I go from this high to the low, but then I go up again because I'm creating this path of execution that keeps me, keeps me going. Yeah, I'm sure many people can relate to that and uh, also learn something from what you just said. And so you mentioned that you had a lot of uh, business ideas. You still have a lot of business ideas. So in 2013, you founded a company in the Philippines. So could you tell us more about that? Oh, yeah. So I was... Um... So after the client consultants, I, I more or less accidentally ended up working in private equity. I was an investor there uh, in a different, the difference between uh, venture capital and private equity is uh, private equity is at a much larger scale. So we had a fund of 9 billion instead of 66 million and you buy majority shares of mature companies. Um, and that was a great start of my career, but I felt every day that I wanted to be in a startup. Like it was sort of like something that kept on going on and on and on and on and on in my head. Like I want to be in a startup, I want to be in a startup. I would tell my friends, you know, if next year I'm still working at Hall Investments, you know, kick me <laughs> because I need to get out. So at a certain point I, I was so, you know, so determined to start a startup that I started telling people about it. You know, if you want something, tell people about it. And somebody that I, I spoke to said, well, talk to Rocket Internet. And Rocket Internet is the founder of uh, Zalando, HelloFresh, many different companies. And so I spoke with Rocket Internet and they said, well, would you want to found a company for us in Asia, in the Philippines? And um, well, I hadn't obviously hadn't thought about an entrepreneurial career in the Philippines, but um, Well, if you don't have a go, you'll never know. So I, uh, I to go for it. it was sort of a random adventure, especially looking back. It was really a bit crazy to go from my private equity career to a non-existent startup in the Philippines. But um, yeah, so, so actually they sent me there with the assignment of go create a classified uh, website, the Funda of the Philippines. Um, and, and I brought along two students, uh, and the three of us, well, we moved to Manila, totally clueless, uh, but, uh, 
yeah, then we started the business and it, it was really fun. We, we made a, a gazillion mistakes, like, like so many mistakes and it was definitely very challenging, but in three years managed to build a company of approximately a hundred people and, and the company is still very much alive and kicking and doing very well. So yeah, it was an adventure. So at what point did you decide to leave this company? Um, well, after approximately three years, it, the cool thing in, in starting a company and anybody who has been through, a, you know, build a company to a certain extent is you go through very different phases. Year one was learning. It was brutal. It was intense. Like I made so many mistakes, especially in terms of like hiring and firing people, hired all the wrong people, uh, took way too long to fire people. Uh, it, it was a mess. It was a mess. Um, but um, so the first year was all about sort of getting a grip. And we grew the team from 1 to 15 people, then 15 to 30, 30 to 50. And all those different phases are totally different. The first phase, 1 to 15, you do everything yourself. I was doing sales. I was doing account management. I was doing the listings. I was doing graphic design, photo taking, whatever, like everything. And everybody in the organization has more or less the same general role. Everybody's just working on everything. And I thought it was totally normal that we would work until 11 p.m. every night with the whole team. And probably my shocked employees were like, okay, I really need to go home. And probably nobody dared tell me this. Um, and then once you get to like 15, you start to get a little bit of structure and things start to calm down a little bit and you start to delegate a little bit more and as you grow to 50 you start to put in place some processes some sales process and account management process and you start to have some senior management that takes care of each team and and as you grow to 100 people you know the um, you get actually a middle la layer of management and so your role as a ceo changes from doing everything to actually really having to Ultimately, in my next role, I led a team of 500 people and you go from doing absolutely everything by yourself to doing absolutely nothing by yourself, like not being able to do anything educational because you should full time be involved in like, where is the company heading and helping, enabling other people in the company or management layers to be successful. So, I mean, that was an immense learning curve. And after three years or three and a half years for me, the learning curve was starting to flatten. And I really believe in your 20s, you should do everything to be on the steepest possible learning curve. And um, so when things get too comfortable, it's a good time to move. And um, so, yeah, when things got too comfortable, I decided to, to leave Slamuri. Initially, wanted to start my own company but ended up uh, leading a large fintech company at the time. So you touched on the fact that you had to uh, go through the process of building a team. Uh, and I know that at peak, uh, they talk a lot about having a hustler, a hipster and a hacker within the team. Uh, so I think that you could just uh, shed some light on what that means. Um, and also just from your, um, from your own experience, uh, what what would you what advice would you give to founders um, on building a team? Um, well, a hacker and a hipster and a hustler. The two most important of that are the the hustler and the hacker. So first of all, you need a vision as an as a company. You need to validate your vision, obviously, and then you need to build something. Um, but if that's where you stop, you're not going to have a company, right? So you need to also be able to sell it. And the ability to sell 
whatever your product is, is as important as the ability to build it. And we really believe in having a hacker and a hustler together because a hacker can sell it. Uh, sorry, hacker can build it. A hustler goes out and sells it, but also it collects a lot of feedback from the customer on how to improve it. And then, you know, go back to the hacker and you fix it and you sell it again. So you have a very fast feedback loop in a company that has the ability to build and the ability to sell. And at times we see companies that have great product people, they have great technicians, but they're not able to sell it. And those companies are not the companies that will ultimately scale successfully. Or you see companies that are able to, to, to sell something, but they have, for example, external tech people. And so they don't have the fast feedback loop. They don't have, you know, and plus tech is super important in a tech company, right? So if it's not internal to your organization, you know, how defensible is your technology? So that's why we want a, a hacker and a hustler. And then the hipster is normally sort of like the design, sort of the product, the idea person, the visionary. I would probably qualify as a hipster myself a little bit. Like I am somebody who has a lot of ideas and I have very strong ideas about, you know, what should it look like? How should it feel? Where are we heading? Uh, but I wouldn't say I'm myself the very best hustler. So I always need to surround myself with somebody who is like a sales tiger. And I can totally sell things. I can be very convincing in a sales pitch, but it's not what drives my energy. And I think that's, you know, that is sort of like the defining thing. What gets you pumped up? And a good hustler kicks on, on sales. A good hustler loves to close a deal that sort of like gets his or her energy totally pumping. And a hacker just loves to build things. Um, so I need to surround myself as a founder who is more of a hipster kind of profile with somebody who's really good at sales, which is exactly what I did when I went to the Philippines. I knew I wasn't the best person in sales. I took the most, like the strongest sales tiger I could find, uh, Sander, a student at the time. And we went to the Philippines and he was just, you know, and unstoppable he would knock on brokers doors he would do sort of like walk-in meetings sort of I don't, I don't remember what he called it but sort of like you would you know go to an office and just stay there until you had a meeting because <laughs> he uh, he had um uh he would call call like you know like without without ever getting tired and 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 that was so important in the success of the company that we had somebody like that um so yeah, so I think the most important thing is know what is your profile, be realistic about it and, you know, team up with people whose core energy is what you are not, right? My core energy is ideation, product design, service design, etc. cetera. Um, I need to team up with somebody who's super commercial and somebody who can actually build a product. So know, know yourself. And as I'm an economics student myself, I know that quite many students see the venture capital industry as a very tough and competitive one to get into. So you as a partner at a VC firm, could you, which kind of advice would you give to young people who want to develop their career in this field? Oh, that's a tough one indeed. Um... The difficulty with venture capital is that there are very few seats available. 
there, you know, your average VC firm only has eight people or something. Like in, in Hall Investments, which was a fund of 9 billion euros, we were 15 people in the investment team. So also there, they would hire one, max two people a year. So that makes it very difficult to get in. Um, how to do so? Well, either you get lucky and sort of like out of university, you sort of immediately get into VC. Um, and the way to increase your chances to get there is to do something entrepreneurial as a student. Because especially a company like P-Capital will not only look for a straight A student. Actually, it's much more important that you already have some experience in setting up the company. So you know what it's like. You've gone through, you know, for certain experiences. So again, we want people to, you know, to speak from experience and not from sort of like a spreadsheet understanding of the company. Um, but another route is to work in a startup or ideally, you know, I would not have ended up in VC if I had not been running startups for the past six years. And I still feel fairly inadequate as an investor um, because I only had so many years of, you know, building companies. But I can't say that, you know, I built my own company and then exited for X hundred million. That, that didn't happen yet. So I still feel inadequate in, you know, who am I to give you advice? Um, uh, even if I have uh, some substantial experience in building companies. So, you know, the best way to do it is work in startups uh, and, and be successful there and then ultimately make it into VC. Um, so, yeah. Also, would like to, you know, give a heads up that venture capital sounds very sexy, <laughs> you know, as, as a strategy consulting, but also be sure that you know what it's actually what it is about, you know, so it's, I think, you know, what do you do as a VC analyst or a VC associate? You speak with a lot of companies. I think that's the basis. You speak to tons of different companies and you learn about who's the team, what does the company do? What do I think about the market? What do I, you know, how do I understand their financial performance? So there's also quite a big analysis component in it. Uh, where you, from a financial quantitative you know, point of view, understand how is a company performing. And you try to make up your mind and have an independent opinion of, do I think it's interesting what they're doing? So your job is really to understand companies um, through conversations and through analysis. And then later, once you're into you know, a deal process, you do a lot of due diligence. This is more technical. So you do a lot of legal work, you do a lot of like financial analysis, and then ultimately you're a portfolio manager. So you support the CEOs of the companies in, in managing their company. And I mean, it's a fun job, but it's also not for everybody. So look through the, through the sexy image of VC and sort of understand what the real role is about. So speaking of uh, supporting companies, uh, obviously we're in pretty unprecedented times at the moment. Uh, we are in the middle of a pandemic. We know that a lot of uh, startups have been affected by the corona crisis, um, and we'll talk a bit more about that later, both the um, negatives and the positives. But could you just give us an idea of how uh, venture capital firms have been affected, particularly peak capital? Yeah, it depends very much, and it primarily depends on... Um what's in your portfolio of companies. So some companies have had major exposure to travel. Say, for example, if you were an investor in 
tickets, which depends fully on ticket sales to museum, uh, get your guide, um, Flixbus, Airbnb, etc. These are all amazing companies, but now at the moment they're not because they have a huge burn meaning uh, they have massive operational expenses because they're big companies. And suddenly their revenues were slashed by like 90%. So like massively. Um, and then there are other VC funds that have very little impact. And I would say P-Capital is, is lucky to be a company that has quite limited impact from, uh, from, from the corona thing. Um, we have some, some companies that actually benefited from it. So, for example, we have a couple of education tech companies like Digital Education that now thrive. A company like Lesson Up suddenly had so much more demand from teachers wanting to give digital lessons. Um, we have a company called Creative Fabrica, which is a marketplace for all kinds of handiwork designs that obviously took off like major way. We have a company, Florijn, which just raised the big Series A from Endite, another VC. Um, they provide capital to SMEs. So they were also in a pretty good place. So, so we've been pretty fortunate. We, um, and because we're quite fortunate, uh, we like not so much has changed in the way we do business. If you need to save all of your companies, so the way that a fund normally works, for example, P-Capital has 66 million and more or less 20 million is for new investments and 40 million is for follow-on investments. But say, for example, I make an investment and now my company is hemorrhaging. Suddenly the burn is four times as big because my uh, revenue is slashed by 90%. So I'm bleeding in a massive way and I need to put more capital into the company to keep it afloat. But because I'm busy saving my my portfolio companies, I have less capital available to do new investments. So those companies will be sort of like the, you know, some, some VCs actually set a hard stop and they said, okay, we won't do any investments for, for a while. Also to see how are things developing? I think the first three months of Corona were sort of like panic and a little bit of like, okay, we have no idea what's going to happen. Is this going to be over in three months time? Or is this going to be sort of a long-term impact? And now after three months, the clouds are starting to clear and we have more visibility. So we know that most likely it will be a more long-term effect. And most people are thinking that it will be at least a two to three-year effect, uh, very much in line with whether there will or will not be a, um, a vaccine, right? But until there is a vaccine, yeah, people will not be able to get together in big crowds. So events are going to have a long-term effect. Travel is going to be long-term affected. Also because people psychologically are more afraid to travel at this point. So, um, so now we have more visibility, which, and more visibility, um, investing is all about risk, right? And the more risk, um, the, the more risk, the worse it is to do investments or the lower the valuations are, right? Because people are, so risk is always directly priced into any economics or finance student will know this. Risk is immediately priced into valuation. So the more risk, the lower valuation. So that was the main effect that you saw during the corona crisis, that valuations went down by 20 or 30%. And the reason for that is um, that there is more risk. 
And so now we have more visibility that helps reduce the risk a little bit. At the same time, we know that there's going to be a prolonged effect. So I think valuations will be under pressure for a little bit longer. But you will see VC starting to do more deals again because we kind of have a feel of, of where it's going. Unless, again, you're saving your portfolio because companies like Airbnb, it's going to be, have a very long-term effect. And talking about uh, investing in startups, again, I've recently read an article which talked about how some venture capital firms are already changing the way they evaluate startups in their deal flow due to the corona crisis. So has Peak Capital implemented something like that as well? I think... Uh, for us, it has not changed. Uh, the only thing that might have changed is that we look at more, are things need to have versus nice to have? The, um, what you always see in a strong economy is that everything gets funded. You know, pre-corona, there was so much money in the market. Every fund raised a yet bigger fund. Our previous fund at Big Capital was 50 million. This fund is 66 million. And so... A lot of funds were making uh, three, four times step ups in their fund size because uh, money on the bank has zero to negative interest. Real estate is, is super expensive, so probably uh, still a good investment. So what, where to put your money, right? So a lot, of com- a lot of sort of like higher net worth individuals want to put their money in higher risk places where they can get better, better returns. So this is why uh, a lot of money was coming into venture capital. Um, And so there's too much money and deals get very competitive. So basically investors end up paying too much for any particular deal. And if you read Warren Buffett, sort of like the first mantra and his only mantra is buy low, sell high. So the moment there's a lot of competition for deals, it becomes actually a very bad investment environment, right? If you have any experience in uh, stock market investing, uh, I started actually very recently uh, with stock market investing and, and I first started in Feb and the prices were sky high at that point. And then March hit and the market tumbled like crazy. First minus 50% and now it's like minus 25%. So the value of my investments, you know, pre-corona are still down. But fortunately, I was able in the, in the total, and you know, at the bottom of the market when everybody was in shock, I really started buying stock very fast. Uh, and obviously that has done super well. So it is good to invest when everybody is scared to invest. You know, you can get the best possible returns as an investor. So, um, so it, it hasn't changed our criteria other than, oh, sorry, what I was trying to say is that when there's too much money in the, in the market, also bad ideas get funded. And stuff that is nice to have versus need to have will still get money. But what happens when there's a corona crisis or any kind of crisis, it kind of cleans up the field. A lot of companies, bad companies are wiped out or are not able to raise funds again. So you really need to focus on what are companies that really solve a pain point? What are companies that add something new? And so the bar is much higher than it used to be, I guess. And so you already talked a bit about this and about how important it is to have a good team. And so Corona side in general, could you elaborate a bit on what are you looking for in an investment? Um, So at B-Capital, we look for, uh, we always use a T-score assessment. I'm not sure if you already use this in ASIF as well. Do you? Mm. No? Okay. So we look at the team, 
attraction thesis and timing. And uh, in team, we look at, um, you know, who is the team? What kind of experience do they have? It and greatly helps if somebody has some entrepreneurial experience before. We look at is the team complete? We have the hacker and hipster and husker, at least the hacker and husker. Um, and we look at coachability. Very important that you can have a good conversation with a team. So on the team side, and for us, team is very important. The earlier you invest, the more you invest based on belief in the team. The later you invest, the more you invest based on traction and financial results. So, and ASIF is even earlier than we are at the capital. So at ASIF, it's probably 100% or an 80% a team belief case. Uh, and, and later, and, and for us, it's 50%. Then we look at um, thesis. What does a company do? Is the market big enough? Are we talking about a market that at, at least say a billion? Um, are we, uh, you know, what is the competitive environment like? Uh, what is the USP of this company? Why, you know, what is their secret sauce? What can they do 10x better than anybody else in that market? What is the defensibility of their competitive advantage? And then on the traction side, we look at what's their growth like? What are their margins like? Um, how capital efficient are they? How good is the retention of their customers? We also often look at usage. So if a product has very little sort of like financial history, what you can do is look at how are people using the product? How often are they logging in? How many actions does an average person do in the app? So you get sort of like very early signals of, of traction. Um, and then we look at timing, like how much are they raising? You know, is that an appropriate amount for the stage that they're in? Uh, how much money have they burned so far uh, to get to the point where they are at? So that's like the timing aspect. So those four team timing, uh, team traction thesis and timing are, are the four elements that we use to assess companies. So you've talked about the fact that uh, the coronavirus uh, pandemic has actually created a bit of an opportunity for VCs in the sense that it's kind of weeded out um, those companies which may not have otherwise survived. So that's been great for VCs. Um, but on the back of that, uh, what kind of other opportunities do you see for startups out there? Hmm. Well, there are certain industries that I think will be structurally affected. So for example, and, and this is an example we all know, work from home, everybody pre-corona, a lot of companies in a way allowed for work from home, but there was also sort of still a very pervasive mindset of like, if all of my employees work from home, we don't, we won't communicate well and there won't be the kind of discipline that we need. Now during Corona, every single company has to change and every single company has also proven that yes, they can have the same level of discipline and the same level of teamwork and coordination remotely. So there's absolutely no reason why people would not be able to continue work from home post-corona. Like, you know, employees will not, <laughs> like there, there's no employer who can say, this does not work for our company because it does. So I think a lot of companies, including we actually at B-Capital are canceling their office. So their office space, you know, in a more permanent way. 
Um, so I think that's something that will have a really permanent effect. The shift from physical meetings and physical space to virtual meetings and virtual space. I think that's one thing that will be permanent. I think the same goes for events. You know, like one, there will not be any mass events in the next two to three years. So we will massively start to adopt virtual events. And also, it really makes so much more sense from a climate perspective. Like, it is ridiculous that, you know, all over the world, people are flying into, like, a central location. It, I mean, think about medical conferences or startup conferences, any kind of conferences. That's such a big industry. But it is, at this point, so irresponsible that we travel in such a way, you know, for a two, three-day conference. We can do this online. So... So I think that is, you know, something that will be a more permanent thing. Same with business travel. You know, I think business travel will be structurally lower. Um, so what will be the industries of future? Well, obviously anything digital. I mean, any, anything health, digital health, digital education. Um, I think investing has taken a major flight. It's quite interesting that, for example, the Giro, uh, for example, really exploded. They had like, a, you know, a waiting list of like 30,000 people. So I think, you know, generally it's very positive for fintech. Anything cashless has a, has a major adoption because you can't pay in cash. Um, so a lot of things that had some sort of like a, an adoption hurdle before because you were used to going to the bank, seeing people in person, working at an office, all of these things that there was sort of like an adoption hurdle because you thought, yeah, well, but the digital experience wouldn't be as good. Now we all know that the digital experience is, you know, is as good or, or better. So I think those things will, will take a flight in the next couple of years. Yeah. And also this pandemic, of course, brought a recession with it as well. So something that I've heard quite a lot is that recession is actually a really good time to launch a startup. So what are your thoughts on this? Oh, um, <laughs> well, it is true that in the previous recession, the 2008 recession, a lot of big companies were born. Airbnb took off, uh, Uber take off, etc. At the same time, there were multiple things happening at the time because uh, in 2008, it was also the launch of a new platform, the mobile platform. So suddenly everybody had a smartphone. Uh, suddenly everybody had mobile, a more affordable mobile internet. So that spurred like a huge wave of innovation. Uh, it spurred mobile commerce. It spurred, spurred social media. It spurred the sharing economy. And now in in 2020, there's no equivalent platform shift. There's no sort of like underlying tech shift that is going to spur that same wave of innovation. So I'm, I'm less, you know, bullish about this crisis being the same as the previous crisis. But the good thing about a crisis is that it's uh, also, it, as it forces investors to focus on, you know, what is essential, it also focuses entrepreneurs to focus on what is essential. Because you are not able to sell, you know, a, something that doesn't really add true value. It won't, it won't take off. It will, it will not see the light of day because nobody will want fund it and you won't get enough customers to sort of keep yourself afloat. So it forces entrepreneurs to focus on the bigger, you know, questions and bigger problems and come up with real solutions. Maybe a second thing is that maybe if you try, you have, will have less competition. 
because fewer people are willing to take that risk versus in a great economy where, you know, everybody can get a job all the time. You might as well drop out, start your company. If it doesn't work, you go back to work. Well, you don't have that kind of luxury right now. So perhaps you have less competition, more relevant and powerful ideas, and maybe that will aid your success. But it will be hard work because it will be tough to get funding at this point, especially for very early stage startups that don't have any sort of proof. So, yeah. So as one uh, final question, um, I know as an entrepreneur, a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of people get quite sort of paralyzed by all of the advice that they get. Um, yeah. I'm sure and you, you have had a lot of advice given to you. Um, and so I guess my final question is, uh, what is one piece of advice which someone has given you and um, has stuck with you, which has really kind of, um, yeah, made a big impact on you and, and what you do? Well, <laughs> probably the best advice I got, which has been a very important mantra for me, was advice that I got when I was three or four years old, which was, if you don't have a go, you'll never know. And that has very much inspired basically all of this, the decisions in my life. Uh, the decision to go to Peru and study in Peru when I was a high schooler, the decision to, you know, to, 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 to start the clinical consultants, the decision to go from a safe private equity role to the Philippines, you know, how random was that? But, you know, if you don't have a goal, you'll never know. And, and so I've always, it has very much inspired me to take chances, uh, to take a chance for the learning experience. You know, if you, if you give it a try, you know, at, the worst case scenario is you'll have learned a very rich lesson. And every time I took a chance, because, you know, because I, I, I live by that mantra, I, it, these have caused the most colorful moments and the most biggest learning experiences in my life. So, yeah, I think maybe the same goes for anybody wanting to start a company or, you know, take a shot at working at PC. Just try. There's nothing to lose, really. That was a great piece of advice for the end and thank you a lot for finding some time for us and having this really interesting and inspiring conversation.